Chapter 6 of Washington Irving's Visit to England by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Stratford on Avon. Thou soft flowing Avon, by thy silver stream of things more than mortal sweet shakespeare would dream the fairies by moonlight dance round his green bed for hallowed the turf is which pillowed his head garrick to a homeless man who has no spot on this wide world which he can truly call his own there is a momentary feeling of something like independence and territorial consequence when after a weary day's travel he kicks off his boots thrusts his feet into slippers and stretches himself before an inn fire let the world without go as it may let kingdoms rise or fall so long as he has the wherewithal to pay his bill he is for the time being the very monarch of all he surveys the armchair is his throne, the poker his scepter. In the little parlor, some twelve feet square, his undisputed empire. It is a morsel of certainly snatched from the midst of the uncertainties of life. It is a sunny moment gleaming out kindly on a cloudy day. And he who has advanced some way on the pilgrimage of existence knows the importance of husbanding even morsels in moments of enjoyment. Shall I not take mine ease in mine inn, thought I, as I gave the fire a stir, lolled back in my elbow-chair, and cast a complacent look about the little parlour of the red horse at Stratford-on-Avon. The words of sweet Shakespeare were just passing through my mind, as the clock struck midnight from the tower of the church in which he lies buried. There was a gentle tap at the door, and a pretty chambermaid, putting in her smiling face, inquired, with a hesitating air, whether I had rung. I understood it as a modest hint that it was time to retire. My dream of absolute dominion was at an end. So abdicating my throne, like a prudent potentate, to avoid being deposed, and putting the Stratford guide-book under my arm as a pillow companion. I went to bed, and dreamt all night of Shakespeare, the Jubilee, and David Garrick. The next morning was one of those quickening mornings, which we sometimes have in early spring, for it was about the middle of March. The chills of a long winter had suddenly given way, the north wind had spent its last gasp, and a mild air came stealing from the west, breathing the breath of life into nature, and wooing every bud and flower to burst forth into fragrance and beauty. I had come to Stratford on a poetical pilgrimage. My first visit was to the house where Shakespeare was born, and where, according to tradition, he was brought up to his father's craft of wool-combing. It is a small, mean-looking edifice of wood and plaster, a true nestling place of genius, 
which seems to delight in hatching its offspring in by corners. The walls of its squalid chambers are covered with names and inscriptions in every language, by pilgrims, of all nations, ranks, and conditions, from the prince to the peasant, and present a simple but striking instance of the spontaneous and universal homage of mankind to the great poet of nature. The house is shown by a garrulous old lady in a frosty red face, lighted up by a cold blue anxious eye, and garnished with artificial locks of flaxen hair, curling from under an exceedingly dirty cap. She was peculiarly assiduous in exhibiting the relics with which this, like all other celebrated shrines, abounds. There was the shattered stock of the very matchlock with which Shakespeare shot the deer on his poaching exploits. There, too, was his tobacco-box, which proves that he was a rival smoker of Sir Walter Raleigh, the sword also with which he played Hamlet, and the identical lantern with which Friar Lawrence discovered Romeo and Juliet at the tomb. There was an ample supply also of Shakespeare's mulberry tree, which seems to have as extraordinary powers of self-multiplication as the wood of the true cross, of which there is enough extant to build a ship of the line. The most favorite object of curiosity, however, is Shakespeare's chair. It stands in a chimney-nook of a small gloomy chamber, just behind what was his father's shop. Here he may many a time have sat when a boy, watching the slowly revolving spit with all the longing of an urchin, or of an evening listening to the cronies and gossips of Stratford, dealing forth churchyard tales and legendary anecdotes of the troublesome times of England. In this chair it is the custom of every one that visits the house to sit, whether this be done with the hope of imbibing any of the inspiration of the bard, I am at a loss to say. I merely mentioned the fact, and mine hostess privately assured me that, though built of solid oak, such was the fervent zeal of devotees, the chair had to be new-bottomed at least once in three years. It is worthy of notice also, in the history of this extraordinary chair, that it partakes something of the volatile nature of the Santa Casa of Loretto, or the flying chair of the Arabian enchanter. For, though sold some few years since to a northern princess, yet, strange to tell, it has found its way back again to the old chimney-corner. I am always of easy faith in such matters, and am ever willing to be deceived, where the deceit is pleasant and costs nothing. I am therefore a ready believer in relics, legends, and local anecdotes of goblins and great men, and would advise all travellers who travel for their gratification to be the same. What is it to us whether these stories be true or false, so long as we can persuade ourselves into the belief of them, and enjoy all the charm of the reality. There is nothing like resolute good-humoured credulity in these matters, and on this occasion I went even so far as willingly to believe the claims of mine hostess to a lineal descent from the poet, when, unluckily for my faith, she put into my hands a play of her own composition, which set all belief in her own consanguinity at defiance. From the birthplace of Shakespeare, 
a few paces brought me to his grave. He lies buried in the chancel of the parish church, a large and venerable pile, mouldering with age, but richly ornamented. It stands on the banks of the Avon, on an embowered point, and separated by adjoining gardens from the suburbs of the town. Its situation is quiet and retired. The river runs murmuring at the foot of the churchyard, and the elms which grow upon its banks droop their branches into its clear bosom. An avenue of limes, the boughs of which are curiously interlaced, so as to form in summer an arched way of foliage, leads up from the gate of the yard to the church porch. The graves are overgrown with grass. The gray tombstones, some of them nearly sunk into the earth, are half covered with moss, which has likewise tinted the reverend old building. Small birds have built their nests among the cornices and fissures of the walls, and keep up a continual flutter and chirping, and rooks are sailing and cawing about its lofty gray spire. In the course of my rambles, I met with the gray-headed sexton, Edmonds, and accompanied him home to get the key of the church. He had lived in Stratford, man and boy, for eighty years, and seemed still to consider himself a vigorous man, with the trivial exception that he had nearly lost the use of his legs for a few years past. His dwelling was a cottage looking out upon the Avon, and its bordering meadows, and was a picture of that neatness, order, and comfort which pervade the humblest dwellings in this country. A low, whitewashed room, with a stone floor carefully scrubbed, served for parlor, kitchen, and hall. Rows of pewter and earthen dishes glittered along the dresser. On an old oaken table, well rubbed and polished, lay the family Bible and prayer book, and the drawer contained the family library composed of about half a score of well-thumbed volumes. An ancient clock, that important article of cottage furniture, ticked on the opposite side of the room, with a bright warming pan hanging on one side of it, and the old man's horn-handled Sunday cane on the other. The fireplace, as usual, was wide and deep enough to admit a gossip knot within its jams. In one corner sat the old man's granddaughter, sewing, a pretty, blue-eyed girl, and in the opposite corner was a superannuated crony, whom he addressed by the name of John Ange, and who, I found, had been his companion from childhood. They had played together in infancy, they had worked together in manhood, they were now tottering about and gossiping away the evening of life, and in a short time they will probably be buried together in the neighboring churchyard. It is not often that we see two streams of existence running thus evenly and tranquilly side by side. It is only in such quiet, bosom scenes of life that they are to be met with. I had hoped to gather some traditionary anecdotes of the bard from these ancient chroniclers, but they had nothing new to impart. The long interval during which Shakespeare's writings lay in comparative neglect has spread its shadow over his history, and it is his good or evil lot, that scarcely anything remains to his biographers but a scanty handful of conjectures. The sexton and his companion had been employed as carpenters on the preparations for the celebrated Stratford Jubilee, and they remembered Garrick, the prime mover of the fete, who superintended the arrangements, and who, 
according to the sexton, was a short punch-man, very lively and bustling. John Ange had assisted also in cutting down Shakespeare's mulberry-tree, of which he had a morsel in his pocket for sale. No doubt a sovereign quickener of literary conception. I was grieved to hear these two worthy whites speak very dubiously of the elegant dame who shows the Shakespeare house. John Ange shook his head when I mentioned her valuable and inexhaustible collection of relics, particularly her remains of the mulberry tree, and the old sexton even expressed a doubt as to Shakespeare having been born in her house. I soon discovered that he looked upon her mansion with an evil eye, as a rival to the poet's tomb the latter having comparatively but few visitors. Thus it is that historians differ at the very outset, and mere pebbles make the stream of truth diverge into different channels, even at the fountain head. We approached the church through the avenue of limes, and entered by a gothic porch, highly ornamented, with carved doors of massive oak. The interior is spacious, and the architecture and embellishments superior to those of most country churches. There are several ancient monuments of nobility and gentry, over some of which hang funeral escutcheons, and banners dropping piecemeal from the walls. The tomb of Shakespeare is in the chancel. The place is solemn and sepulchral. Tall elms wave before the pointed windows, and the Avon, which runs at a short distance from the walls, keeps up a low, perpetual murmur. A flat stone marks the spot where the bard is buried. There are four lines inscribed on it, said to have been written by himself, and which have in them something extremely awful. If they are indeed his own, they show that solicitude about the quiet of the grave, which seems natural to fine sensibilities and thoughtful minds. Good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be he that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. Just over the grave, in a niche of the wall, is a bust of Shakespeare, put up shortly after his death, and considered as a resemblance. The aspect is pleasant and serene, with a finely arched forehead, and I thought I could read in it clear indications of that cheerful, social disposition, by which he was as much characterized among his contemporaries as by the vastness of his genius. The inscription mentions his age at the time of his decease, fifty-three years, an untimely death for the world, for what fruit might not have been expected from the golden autumn of such a mind, sheltered as it was from the stormy vicissitudes of life, and flourishing in the sunshine of popular and royal favor. The inscription on the tombstone has not been without its effect. It has prevented the removal of its remains from the bosom of his native place to Westminster Abbey, which was at one time contemplated. A few years since also, as some laborers were digging to make an adjoining vault, the earth caved in, so as to leave a vacant space, almost like an arch, through which one might have reached into his grave. No one, however, presumed to meddle with his remains, so awfully guarded by a malediction, unless any of the idle, or the curious, or any collector of relics should be tempted to commit depredations. 
the old sexton kept watch over the place for two days, until the vault was finished, and the aperture closed again. He told me that he had made bold to look in at the hole, but could see neither coffin nor bones, nothing but dust. It was something, I thought, to have seen the dust of Shakespeare. Next to this grave are those of his wife, his favorite daughter, Mrs. Hall, and others of his family. On a tomb close by, also, is a full-length effigy of his old friend, John Combe, of usurious memory, of whom he is said to have written a ludicrous epitaph. There are other monuments around, but the mind refuses to dwell on anything that is not connected with Shakespeare. His idea pervades the place. The whole pile seems but as his mausoleum. The feelings, no longer checked and thwarted by doubt, here indulge in perfect confidence. Other traces of him may be false or dubious, but here is palpable evidence and absolute certainty. As I trod the sounding pavement there was something intense and thrilling in the idea that in very truth the remains of Shakespeare were mouldering beneath my feet. It was a long time before I could prevail upon myself to leave the place, and as I passed through the churchyard I plucked a branch from one of the yew-trees, the only relic that I have brought from Stratford. I had now visited the usual objects of a pilgrim's devotion, but I had a desire to see the old family seat of the Lucys at Charlecot, and to ramble through the park where Shakespeare, in company with some of the roisterers of Stratford, committed his youthful offense of deer-stealing. In this hare-brained exploit we are told, that he was taken prisoner and carried to the keeper's lodge, where he remained all night in doleful captivity. When brought into the presence of Sir Thomas Lucy, his treatment must have been galling and humiliating, for it so wrought upon his spirit as to produce a rough pasquinade which was affixed to the park gate at Charlecot. Footnote. The following is the only stanza extant of this lampoon. A Parliament member, a Justice of Peace, at home a poor scarecrow, at London an ass. If Losey is Lucy, as some volk miscall it, then Lucy is Losey, whatever befall it. He thinks himself great, yet an ass in his state. We allow by his ears, but with asses to mate. If Lucy is Losey, as some volk miscall it, then sing lousy Lucy, whatever befall it. End of footnote. This flagitious attack upon the dignity of the knight so incensed him that he applied to a lawyer at Warwick to put the severity of the laws in force against the rhyming deer-stalker. Shakespeare did not wait to brave the united puissance of a knight of the shire and a country attorney. He forthwith abandoned the pleasant banks of the Avon and his paternal trade wandered away to London, became a hanger-on to the theatres, then an actor, and finally wrote for the stage, and thus, through the persecution of Sir Thomas Lucy, Stratford lost an indifferent wool-comber, and the world gained an immortal poet. He retained, however, for a long time, a sense of the harsh treatment of the Lord of Charlecot, and revenged himself in his writings, but in the sportive way of a good-natured mind. Sir Thomas is said to be the original of Justice Shallow, 
and the satire is slyly fixed upon him by the justice's armorial bearings, which, like those of the knight, had white looses in the quarterings. Footnote. The loose is a pike or jack, and abounds in the Avon about Charlecot. End, quote. End of footnote. Various attempts have been made by his biographers to soften and explain away this early transgression of the poet. But I look upon it as one of those thoughtless exploits natural to his situation and turn of mind. Shakespeare, when young, had doubtless all the wildness and irregularity of an ardent, undisciplined, and undirected genius. The poetic temperament is naturally something in it of the vagabond. When left to itself, it runs loosely and wildly, and delights in everything eccentric and licentious. It is often a turn-up of a die, and the gambling freaks of fate, whether a natural genius shall turn out a great rogue or a great poet. And had not Shakespeare's mind fortunately taken a literary bias, he might have as daringly transcended all civil as he has all dramatic laws. I have little doubt that, in early life, when running like an unbroken colt about the neighborhood of Stratford, he was to be found in the company of all kinds of odd, anomalous characters. They associated with all the madcaps of the place, and was one of those unlucky urchins at mention of whom old men shake their heads and predict that they will one day come to the gallows. To him, the poaching in Sir Thomas Lucy's park was doubtless like a foray to a Scottish knight, and struck his eager and as yet untamed imagination as something delightfully adventurous. Footnote. A proof of Shakespeare's random habits and associates in his youthful days may be found in a traditionary anecdote, picked up at Stratford by the elder Ireland, and mentioned in his picturesque views on the Avon. End of footnote. About seven miles from Stratford lies the thirsty little market town of Bedford, famous for its ale. Two societies of the village yeomanry used to meet, under the appellation of the Bedford Toppers, to challenge the lovers of good ale of the neighboring villages to a contest of drinking. Among others, the people of Stratford were called out to prove the strength of their heads, and in the number of the champions was Shakespeare, who, in spite of the proverb that they who drink beer will think beer, was as true to his ale as Falstaff to his sack. The chivalry of Stratford was staggered at the first onset, and sounded a retreat while they had yet the legs to carry them off the field. They had scarcely marched a mile when, their legs failing them, they were forced to lie down under a crab tree, where they passed the night. It was still standing, and goes by the name of Shakespeare's Tree. In the morning his companions awaked the bard, and proposed returning to Bedford. But he declined, saying he had enough, having drank with Piping Bepworth, Dancing Marston, Haunted Hillbro, Hungry Grafton, Dudging Exhall, Papist Wixford, Beggarly Broom, and Drunken Bedford. The villages here alluded to, says Ireland, still bear the epithets thus given them. The people of Pebworth are still famed for their skill on the pipe and tabor. Hillborough is now called Haunted Hillborough, and Grafton is famous for the poverty of its soil. 
The old mansion of Charlecot and its surrounding park still remain in the possession of the Lucy family, and are a peculiarly interesting front being connected with this whimsical but eventful circumstance in the scanty history of the bard. As the house stood at little more than three miles distance from Stratford, I resolved to pay it a pedestrian visit, that I might stroll leisurely through some of the scenes from which Shakespeare must have derived his earliest ideas of rural imagery. The country was yet naked and leafless, but English scenery is always verdant, and the sudden change in the temperature of the weather was surprising in its quickening effects upon the landscape. It was inspiring and animating to witness this first awakening of spring, to feel its warm breath stealing over the senses, to see the moist mellow earth beginning to put forth the green sprout, and the tender blade, and the trees and shrubs, and the reviving tints and bursting buds, giving the promise of returning foliage and flower. The cold snowdrop, the little borderer on the skirts of winter, was to be seen with its chaste white blossoms in the small gardens before the cottages. The bleating of the new-dropped lambs was faintly heard from the fields. The sparrow twittered about the thatched eaves and budding hedges. The robin threw a livelier note into his late querulous wintry strain, and the lark, springing up from the reeking bosom of the meadow, towered away into the bright fleecy cloud, pouring forth torrents of melody. As I watched the little songster mounting up higher and higher, until his body was a mere speck on the white bosom of the cloud, while the ear was still filled with his music, it called to mind Shakespeare's exquisite little song in Cymbeline. Hark, hark, the lark at heaven's gate sings, and Phoebus gins rise, his steeds to water at those springs, on chaliced flowers that lies, and winking merry buds begin to ope their golden eyes, with everything that pretty been, my lady sweet arise. Indeed, the whole country about here is poetic ground. Everything is associated with the idea of Shakespeare. Every old cottage that I saw, I fancied into some resort of his boyhood, where he had acquired his intimate knowledge of rustic life and manners, and heard those legendary tales and wild superstitions which he has woven like witchcraft into his dramas. For in his time, we are told, it was a popular amusement in winter evenings, to sit round the fire and tell merry tales of errant knights, queens, lovers, lords, ladies, giants, dwarfs, thieves, cheaters, witches, fairies, goblins, and friars. Footnote. Scott, in his Discovery of Witchcraft, enumerates of those fireside fancies, and they have so frayed us with host bull beggars, spirits, witches, urchins, elves, hags, fairies, satyrs, pans, fawns, sirens, kit with the can stick, tritons, centaurs, dwarfs, giants, imps, calcars, conjurers, nymphs, changelings, incubus, Robin Goodfellow, the Sporn, the Mare, the Man in the Oak, the Hellwain, the Fire Drake, the Puckle, Tom Thumb, Hobgoblins, Tom Tumbler, Boneless, and such other bugs that we were afraid of our own shadows. End of footnote. My route for a part of the way lay in sight of the Avon, 
which made a variety of the most fancy doublings and windings through a wide and fertile valley, sometimes glittering from among willows which fringed its borders, sometimes disappearing among groves or beneath green banks, and sometimes rambling out into full view and making an azure sweep round a slope of meadow land. This beautiful bosom of country is called the Vale of the Red Horse. A distant line of undulating blue hills seems to be its boundary, whilst all the soft intervening landscape lies in a manner enchained in the silver links of the Avon. After pursuing the road for about three miles, I turned off into a footpath, which led along the borders of fields and under hedgerows to a private gate of the park. There was a stile, however, for the benefit of the pedestrian, there being a public right-of-way through the grounds. I delight in these hospitable estates, in which every one has a kind of property, at least as far as the footpath is concerned. It in some measure reconciles a poor man to his lot, and, what is more, to the better lot of his neighbor, thus to have parks and pleasure grounds thrown open for his recreation. He breathes the pure air as freely, and lolls as luxuriously under the shade as the lord of the soil. And if he has not the privilege of calling all that he sees his own, he has not, at the same time, the trouble of paying for it and keeping it in order. I now found myself among noble avenues of oaks and elms, whose vast size bespoke the growth of centuries. The wind sounded solemnly among their branches, and the rooks cawed from their hereditary nests in the treetops. The eye ranged through a long, lessening vista, with nothing to interrupt the view, but a distant statue and a vagrant deer stalking like a shadow across the opening. There is something about these stately old avenues that has the effect of Gothic architecture, not merely from their pretended similarity of form, but from their bearing the evidence of long duration, and of having had their origin in a period of time with which we associate ideas of romantic grandeur. They betoken also the long-settled dignity and proudly concentrated independence of an ancient family, and I have heard a worthy but aristocratic old friend observe, when speaking of the sumptuous palaces of modern gentry, that money could do it much with stone and mortar, but thank heaven there was no such thing as suddenly building up an avenue of oaks. It was from wandering in early life among this rich scenery, and about the romantic solitudes of the adjoining park of Fulbrook, which then formed a part of the Lucy estate, that some of Shakespeare's commentators have supposed he derived his noble forest meditations of Jacques and the enchanting woodland pictures in as you like it. It is in lonely wanderings through such scenes that the mind drinks deep but quiet draughts of inspiration, and becomes intensely sensible of the beauty and majesty of nature. The imagination kindles into reverie and rapture. Vague but exquisite images and ideas keep breaking upon it, and we revel in a mute and almost incommunicable luxury of thought. It was in some such mood and perhaps under one of those very trees before me, which threw their broad shades over the grassy banks and quivering waters of the Avon, that the poet's fancy may have sallied forth into that little song which breathes the very soul of a rural voluptuary. Unto the greenwood tree who loves to lie with me, and tune his merry throat unto the sweet bird's note, Come hither, come hither, come hither, here, 
shall he see no enemy but winter and rough weather i had now come in sight of the house it is a large building of brick with stone coins and is in the gothic style of queen elizabeth's day having been built in the first year of her reign the exterior remains very nearly in its original state and may be considered a fair specimen of the residence of a wealthy country gentleman of those days a great gateway opens from the park into a kind of courtyard in front of the house ornamented with a grass plot shrubs and flower beds the gateway is an imitation of the ancient barbican being a kind of outpost and flanked by towers though evidently for mere ornament instead of defence the front of the house is completely in the old style with stone shafted casements a great bow window of heavy stonework and a portal with armorial bearings over it carved in stone at each corner of the building is an octagon tower surmounted by a gilt ball and weathercock the avon which winds through the park makes a bend just at the foot of a gently sloping bank which sweeps down from the rear of the house large herds of deer were feeding or reposing upon its borders and swans were sailing majestically upon its bosom as i contemplated the venerable old mansion i called to mind falstaff's encomium on justice shallow's abode and the affected indifference and real vanity of the latter falstaff you have a goodly dwelling and a rich shallow barren 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 beggars all beggars all sir john marry good air whatever may have been the joviality of the old mansion in the days of shakespeare it now had an air of stillness and solitude the great iron gateway that opened into the courtyard was locked there was no show of servants bustling about the place the deer gazed quietly at me as i passed being no longer harried by the moss troopers of stratford the only sign of domestic life that i met with was a white cat stealing with weary look and stealthy pace towards the stables as if on some nefarious expedition i must not omit to mention the carcass of a scoundrel crow which i saw suspended against the barn wall as it shows that the lucy still inherit that lordly abhorrence of poachers and maintain that rigorous exercise of territorial power which was so strenuously manifested in the case of the bard after prowling about for some time i at length found my way to a lateral portal which was the everyday entrance to the mansion i was courteously received by a worthy old housekeeper who with the civility and communicativeness of her order showed me the interior of the house the greater part has undergone alterations and been adapted to modern tastes and modes of living there is a fine old oaken staircase and the great hall that noble feature in an ancient manor house still retains much of the appearance it must have had in the days of shakespeare the ceiling is arched and lofty and at one end is a gallery in which stands an organ the weapons and trophies of the chase which formerly adorned the hall of a country gentleman have made way for family portraits there is a wide hospitable fireplace calculated for an ample old-fashioned wood fire formerly the rallying place of winter festivity on the opposite side of the hall is the huge gothic bow window with stone shafts which looks out upon the courtyard here are emblazoned in stained glass the armorial bearings of the lucy family for many generations some being dated in fifteen fifty eight 
I was delighted to observe in the quarterings the three white looses by which the character of Sir Thomas was first identified with that of Justice Shallow. They are mentioned in the first scene of the Merry Wives of Windsor, where the Justice is in a rage with Falstaff for having beaten his men, killed his deer, and broken into his lodge. The poet had no doubt the offences of himself and his comrades in mind at the time, and we may suppose the family pride and vindictive threats of the Poussant Shallow to be a caricature of the pompous indignation of Sir Thomas. Shallow, Sir Hugh, persuade me not. I will make a star-chamber matter of it. If he were twenty John Falstaffs, he shall not abuse Sir Robert Shallow, Esquire. Slender, in the county of Gloucester, Justice of Peace and Quorum. Shallow, I, Cousin Slender, and Custolorum. Slender, I, and Ratalorum, too, and a gentleman born, Master Parson, who writes himself Armigero in any bill, warrant, quittance, or obligation, Armigero. Shallow, I, that I do, and have done any time these three hundred years. Slender, all his successors gone before him have done it, and all his ancestors that came after him may, they may give the dozen white looses in their coat. Shallow. The council shall hear it. It is a riot. Evans. It is not meet the council hear of a riot. There is no fear of got in a riot. The council hear you shall desire to hear the fear of got, and not to hear a riot. Take your visiments in that. Shallow. Ha! O my life! If I were young again, the sword shall end it. Near the window, thus emblazoned, hung a portrait by Sir Peter Lely, of one of the Lucy family. A great beauty of the time of Charles the Second. The old housekeeper shook her head as she pointed to the picture, and informed me that this lady had been sadly addicted to cards, and had gambled away a great portion of the family estate, among which was that part of the park where Shakespeare and his comrades had killed the deer. The lands thus lost had not been entirely regained by the family, even at the present day. It is but justice to this recreant dame to confess that she had a surpassingly fine hand and arm. The picture which most attracted my attention was a great painting over the fireplace, containing likenesses of Sir Thomas Lucy and his family who inhabited the hall in the latter part of Shakespeare's lifetime. I at first thought that it was the vindictive knight himself, but the housekeeper assured me that it was his son, the only likeness extant of the former being an effigy upon his tomb in the church of the neighboring hamlet of Charlecote. Footnote. This effigy is in white marble, and represents the knight in complete armor. Near him lies the effigy of his wife, and on her tomb is the following inscription, which, if really composed by her husband, places him quite above the intellectual level of Master Shallow. Here lieth the Lady Joyce Lucy wife of Sir Thomas Lucy of Charlottetoe, in ye county of Warwick, knight, daughter and heir of Thomas Acton of Sutton, in ye county of Worcester, Esquire, who departed out of this wretched world to her heavenly kingdom, ye ten day of February, in ye year of our Lord God, 1595, and of her age sixty and three, all the time of her life a true and faithful servant of her good God, 
never detected of any crime or vice, in religion most sound, in love to her husband most faithful and true, in friendship most constant, to what in trust was committed unto her most secret, in wisdom excelling, in governing of her house, bringing up of youth in ye fear of God, that did converse with her most rare and singular, a great maintainer of hospitality, greatly esteemed of her betters, misliked of none and less of the envious. When all is spoken that can be said, a woman so garnished with virtue is not to be bettered and hardly to be equaled by any. As she lived most virtuously, so she died most godly. Set down by him, yet best did know what hath been written to be true. Thomas Lucy End of footnote the picture gives a lively idea of the costume and manners of the time. Sir Thomas is dressed in rough and doublet, white shoes with roses in them, and has a peaked yellow, or, as Master Slender would say, a cane-colored beard. His lady is seated on the opposite side of the picture in white ruff and long stomacher, and the children have a most venerable stiffness and formality of dress. Hounds and spaniels are mingled in the family group. A hawk is seated on his perch in the foreground, and one of the children holds a bow, all intimating the knight's skill in hunting, hawking, and archery, so indispensable to an accomplished gentleman in those days. Footnote. Bishop Earl, speaking of the country gentlemen of his time, observes, His housekeeping is seen much in the different families of dogs and serving men, attendant on their kennels and the deepness of their throats is the depth of his discourse. A hawk he esteems the true burden of nobility, and is exceedingly ambitious to seem delighted with the sport, and have his fist gloved with his jesses. And Gilpin, in his description of a Mr. Hastings, remarks, He kept all sort of hounds that run buck, fox, hare, otter, and badger, and had hawks of all kinds, both long and short-winged. His great hall was commonly strewed with marrow-bones, and full of hawk-perches, hounds, spaniels, and terriers. On a broad hearth, paved with brick, lay some of the choicest terriers, hounds, and spaniels. End of footnote. I regretted to find that the ancient furniture of the hall had disappeared, for I had hoped to meet with the stately elbow-chair of carved oak, in which the country squire of former days was wont to sway the sceptre of empire, over his rural domains, and in which it might be presumed the redoubled Sir Thomas sat enthroned in awful state when the recreant Shakespeare was brought before him. As I liked to deck out pictures for my own entertainment, I pleased myself with the idea that this very hall had been the scene of the unlucky bard's examination on the morning after his captivity in the lodge. I fancied to myself the rural potentate surrounded by his bodyguard of butler, pages, and blue-coated serving-men, with their badges, while the luckless culprit was brought in, forlorn and chop-fallen, in the custody of gamekeepers, huntsmen, and whippers-in, followed by a rabble-rout of country clowns. I fancied bright faces of curious housemaids peeping from the half-open doors, while from the gallery the fair daughters of the night leaned gracefully forward, eyeing the youthful prisoner with that pity that dwells in womanhood. Who would have thought that his poor violet, thus trembling before the brief authority of a country squire, and the sport of rustic boars, was soon to become the delight of princes, 
the theme of all tongues and ages, the dictator to the human mind, and was to confer immortality on his oppressor by a character and a lampoon. I was now invited by the butler to walk into the garden, and I felt inclined to visit the orchard and harbor where the justice treated Sir John Falstaff, and Cousin Silence to a last year's pippin of his own grafting, with a dish of caraways. But I had already spent so much of the day in my ramblings, that I was obliged to give up any further investigations. When about to take my leave, I was gratified by the civil entreaties of the housekeeper and butler, that I would take some refreshment, an instance of good old hospitality which, I grieve to say, we castle hunters seldom meet with in modern days. I make no doubt it is a virtue which the present representative of the Lucys inherits from his ancestors, for Shakespeare, even in his character, makes Justice Shallow importunate in this respect, as witness his pressing instances to Falstaff. By cock and pie, sir, you shall not away to-night. I will not excuse you. You shall not be excused. Excuses shall not be admitted. There is no excuse shall serve. You shall not be excused. Some pigeons, Davy, a couple of short-legged hens, a joint of mutton, and any pretty little tiny kickshaws, tell William Cook. I now bade a reluctant farewell to the old hall. My mind had become so completely possessed by the imagery scenes and characters connected with it, that I seemed to be actually living among them. Everything brought them, as it were, before my eyes, and as the door of the dining-room opened, I almost expected to hear the feeble voice of Master Silence wavering forth his favorite ditty. "'Tis merry in hall, when beards wag all, and welcome, merry shrove-tide." On returning to my inn, I could not but reflect on the singular gift of the poet, to be able thus to spread the magic of his mind over the very face of nature, to give to things and places a charm and character not their own, and to turn this working-day world into a perfect fairyland. He is indeed the true enchanter, whose spell operates not upon the senses, but upon the imagination and the heart. Under the wizard influence of Shakespeare, I had been walking all day in a complete delusion. I had surveyed the landscape through the prism of poetry, which tinged every object with the hues of the rainbow. I had been surrounded with fancied beings, with mere airy nothings conjured up by poetic power, yet which to me had all the charm of reality. I had heard Jacques soliloquize beneath his oak, had beheld the fair Rosalind and her companion adventuring through the woodlands, and above all, had been once more present in spirit with fat Jack Falstaff and his contemporaries, from the august Justice Shallow down to the gentle Master Slender and the sweet Anne Page. Ten thousand honors and blessings on the bard, who has thus gilded the dull realities of life with innocent illusions, who has spread exquisite and unbought pleasures in my checkered path, and beguiled my spirit in many a lonely hour with all the cordial and cheerful sympathies of social life. As I crossed the bridge over the Avon on my return, I paused to contemplate the distant church in which the poet lies buried, and could not but exult in the malediction which has kept his ashes undisturbed in its quiet and hallowed vaults. What honor could his name have derived from being mingled in dusty companionship with the epitaphs and escutcheons and venal eloquiums of a titled multitude? 
but would a crowded corner in westminster abbey have been compared with this reverend pile which seems to stand in beautiful loneliness as his sole mausoleum the solitude about the grave may be but the offspring of an overwrought sensibility but human nature is made up of foibles and prejudices and its best and tenderest affections are mingled with these factitious feelings he who has sought renown about the world and has reaped a full harvest of worldly favor will find after all that there is no love no admiration no applause so sweet to the soul as that which springs up in his native place it is there that he seeks to be gathered in peace and honor among his kindred and his early friends and when the weary heart and failing head begin to warn him that the evening of life is drawing on he turns as finally as does the infant to the mother's arms to sink to sleep in the bosom of the scene of his childhood how would it have cheered the spirit of the youthful bard when wandering forth in disgrace upon a doubtful world he cast back a heavy look upon his paternal home could he have foreseen that before many years he should return to it covered with renown that his name should become the boast and glory of his native place that his ashes should be religiously guarded as its most precious treasure and that its lessening spire on which his eyes were fixed in tearful contemplation should one day become the beacon towering amidst the gentle landscape to guide the literary pilgrim of every nation to his tomb end of chapter six recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida end of washington irving's visit to england by washington irving